Today's guest on My Climate Journey is Antti Vihavainen, co-founder and CEO of Helsinki-based Puro.Earth. Puro is a leading crediting platform and registry for engineered carbon removal. In 2021, NASDAQ acquired a controlling stake in Puro, helping further establish its credibility in the marketplace. Puro is actively offering engineered carbon removal credits today for a few dozen projects that primarily consist of biochar and bioconstruction initiatives. In addition, Puro has an initiative called Puro Accelerate that enables buyers to buy essentially futures credits for other forms of carbon removal that aren't yet producing at scale, but which Puro has deemed highly credible and likely to produce in the relative near term. These Accelerate projects include efforts in direct air capture, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECS, geologically stored carbon, woody biomass burial, and additional biochar projects. Antti and I trace how Puro.Earth came to be and cover the details of their current registry offerings and their futures offerings. We discuss their business model and how they compare to other carbon credit and offset registries. And he shares his thoughts on how he sees carbon removal scaling in the years to come. But before we dive in, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, Auntie, welcome to the show. Hey, Cody, thanks very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. So, Auntie, I hear Puro all the time come up when I'm talking to different companies working in various forms of carbon dioxide removal or other programs. But this is the first we've had a chance to chat. So I'm excited to hear about how you fit into the broad registry space, the broad advanced market commitment space, all the activity that's happening right now to help these, in most cases, still nascent companies connect and find marketplaces for the offerings that they're in the process of developing. So Maybe let's start with a little bit first about you. How did you get into this incredibly exciting but still very early world of carbon dioxide removal? Yeah, thanks. My climate journey actually begins in 1995 when I was still in the university and I was responsible for the so-called environmental affairs. We organized a seminar of a, of a sort where we invited Finnish corporations to come and share their views to the students, uh, how they can gain competitive advantage by using green processes, green business uh, practices. Sustainability was not a word till uh, then. And ever since, I've been working in, in various kinds of early stage ventures in my life, and mostly in the telecommunications, cybersecurity and uh, Internet of Things areas. And wanted to create a sort of a more of a efficient technical infrastructure where people can interact and transact securely without consuming too much energy. So basically, I realized that the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is already too high. And at the same time, came to the conclusion that there are actually ways of actively drawing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But the business model was sort of missing, since that's my area of expertise, figuring out business models and ways of enabling things to be on the market. That was a a challenge that we or I decided to take then in 2017, 18. 
Yeah. I, I mean, does it any tie to that? It seems like one of the, the moments that spurred a lot of people into action was the 2017 IPCC report. I don't know if, if that has any tie to the timing of when you jumped in, but it seems like it's right around there. 2018 was the time when the special report 15 was launched. That was in October and we had already started. We had already decided to focus on carbon removal back then. And that was the first time that IPCC really realized or the report was all about carbon removal or the necessity of negative emissions. Got it. So we had a bit of a head start there. There you go. And we didn't know how to do it. It was an open question when we asked, what, what is the business model? We basically wanted to create something that is easy to communicate and uh, where the business mechanism is for easy for everybody to understand, which is a marketplace. However, the challenge was that we didn't really have uh, <laughs> the infrastructure beneath the marketplace. We thought that we could build on the existing framework, but uh, then we came to the conclusion that the existing carbon markets didn't really recognize the concept of negative emissions properly. We needed to create a new asset class that is entirely based on net negative emissions. And then that resulted in or sort of cascaded into a relatively formidable set of infrastructure that needed to be created. And we designed that together with 22 other companies from six different countries during the, well, basically spring of 2019. And at the time, I'm guessing most, I suppose they weren't even necessarily called carbon credits yet. They were just called carbon offsets. Yeah. Most of them were either around helping to scale renewable energy, so renewable energy credits, or we were just starting to see the early days of forestry credits, I guess, at that time as well, forestry avoided emissions credits. Was that basically the landscape you were looking at? And and I guess, what kinds of projects were you seeing that weren't fitting into that box that were around? Now there's direct air capture, there's all sorts of things, but mm. those weren't really around in 2018 yet. So I'm curious what you were seeing that got you excited to lean in here. We, we saw that there are these afforestation projects that are definitely carbon removal, but we figured that the whole point or the effectiveness of the activity depends on how long the CO2 remains away from circulation. So we decided to focus on the storage time so and measurability and uh, all these uh, other sort of principles that we developed along the way. For that purpose, well, we didn't know which horse to bet on, so we didn't know which one is going to be the the winning process that we should bet on, whether it's soil organic carbon or direct air capture or any of the other biochars or the other candidates. So therefore, we decided that let's just start building a library of methodologies, documents that describe the requirements for these activities that are meant to produce negative emissions. And that's the basis. If I understand then, with the forestry afforestation avoidance project, you're creating models that will identify if this tree was cut down, how much CO2 would it release? Your thesis was, hey, there are all these other technologies out there that are actually taking the actual atoms and putting them somewhere. And so we're going to focus on projects where you physically can actually see an atom being locked up in some place. Is that accurate? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so you you mentioned kind of these initial, I think you said 22 projects at the time. What were they? You know, was it? Mo it seems like today most of the projects that are certified are are biochar. Was that sort of the heavy focus initially as well for you? Yeah, when I mentioned 22, it was 22 organizations. Uh, okay. They were both buyers and suppliers and research organizations and think tanks. And it was a variety of different different kinds of organizations. 
But we designed three methodologies, one of them being biochar, mm. second one, carbonated building materials, and then woody, woody building elements. Basically, we've had a bunch of the biochar and woody building element right from the beginning. We have not seen the carbonated uh, materials profilerate the way we wanted or we expected. So that's still hopefully so you're right. If you look at our website, uh, most of them today are based still uh, biochar. But there's a whole bunch of um, new projects coming from areas like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, of course, direct air capture, enhanced rock weathering. And for example, this, the fourth one, which is woody biomass burial. Yeah, I want to get into all those in terms of what you're seeing on the horizon. What I'm really interested in right now is what got you excited in the first place. And it seems like maybe... There was some sense of, hey, there were these new technologies on the horizon, but also there's there's a set of technologies that essentially today are ready to be used, probably biochar being the, the largest among them. It seems like one of the challenges potentially with biochar is hard to create a large scaled company. Most of the biochar businesses I see are relatively local kind of, I would call them environmental services companies, as opposed to like building out for large scaled technology platforms. Would you say that's an accurate view of the biochar space? No, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a different kind of business, right? That's correct. And this is exactly if we look in the rear view mirror, that is indeed the case. However, I think one really exciting phenomenon we are seeing is that large industrial organizations are now looking at their different kinds of logistics streams or, or biomass streams and realizing that some of those can be turned into a storage, carbon storage. So basically turning a liability into an asset, which is a powerful incentive for these companies to really look at carefully uh, of the investment opportunities in basically turning biomass, waste biomass into carbon or biochar. So that would be a, basically a circular inset in their own supply chain, as I understand it, right? Like taking their own waste yeah. and turning that into a profit center for them through sequestration. So there are a couple of these examples already. One of them is actually in Brazil. It's mm. a company called Aperam. They are a steel manufacturer, but they also produce biocoke. And uh, part of that biocoke can be uh, used as or turned into biochar. And those are massive, massive streams. So it's it's not just cottage industry. There's a lot of potential there. And before we get into sort of what you're seeing in the future, Auntie, uh, just to finish the origin story, right? So you, you founded Puro in 2018, I believe, and then yeah. worked on these initial three methodologies that you mentioned and now have a public registry where you have, I think, 38 or so projects that are actively approved and available for sequestration. You've announced a major financial event with NASDAQ. Do you want to share a bit more about that as well? Yeah, Nasdaq uh, was uh, apparently looking for a way to get the feeling of the carbon markets and wanted also to contribute to the creation of a more, let's say, trustworthy market. And because, of course, they've seen what happens in different kinds of conditions and different kinds of markets. And uh, we were very, very young organization at the time, but they wanted to invest uh, in us and been a very, very fruitful collaboration so far. They support us in many different respects. And I must say that having their backing helps us in some conversations where, of course, if we were just a Finnish startup with VC funding, for example, or even local funding, it would be much less perceived, less stable as uh, now that we've got the uh, Nasdaq backing there. And they acquired a majority stake in Puro? That was a, that's a majority stake. Yes, that's right. 
Yeah. Well, congratulations. That certainly lends a reputable brand to what you're doing. And so then just so people kind of understand the basic business of Puro. So you issue these, you call them corks, CO2 removal credits, and that's based on your own methodologies that you have developed and that you then have third parties that go out and certify the carbon removal facilities of the projects that you enable tonnage or corks to be for sale providing. Is that a, a general correct view of the world? Yes, pretty much so. So we create the methodologies to in a working group together with the best scientists, researchers and projects that are bringing this new activity from the laboratories to the fields and, and actually you know, doing trials and that have the practical expertise. Then we introduce that work to an advisory board. So our board of directors has basically mandated this collection of individuals that we call the advisory board to either approve or disapprove the methodologies, which then we implement on the business side. It's a wonderful group, which is led by Professor Miles Allen from the University of Oxford. He is a true star in this field. He, he makes things happen. That's amazing. And how do you view where Puro sits in the broad carbon credit world relative to some of the other big registry names we may know of, whether it's Vera, whether it's Gold Standard, Eco Registry, etc.? What the specific differentiator is that you are 100% carbon removal focused? Is that correct? Yeah. Other than that, are there, are there big differences in, in business model or structure that are worth our listeners understanding? So we haven't really reinvented the wheel in most of the processes related to running a registry or a standard. So there are a couple of differences. One of them is, of course, the focus to carbon net negative activities. And then the other one is related to the business model. So we don't charge anybody for participation in the methodology creation sessions. We don't charge. We actually pay for the verification in order to avoid any sort of potential for corruption. So the project cannot select their friend to do the verification. So we do that on their behalf. We pay for it. And then we don't charge anything for the issuance of certificates or credits. So we don't really have a an incentive to issue as many credits as possible because we don't really earn any money from that. So our business model is, is fully aligned with the supplier. So we only start earning money when they start earning money. And it's proportional to the value of, of the credit. So uh, if the buyer perceives that quality of the credit is high, then they are likely to pay a higher price. It's good for the industry. It's good for the supplier. And it's good for us as well. Fascinating. And that makes me want to dive into all sorts of questions on what you're doing with Puro Accelerate, which is really, as I understand it, about fomenting future technology markets helping to take allow nascent and emerging technologies to find their pathway toward carbon removal. And yet what I just heard you say is you don't even get paid until credits are delivered to the suppliers. And so that to me sounds like you're taking a very long term view on this whole problem space. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, luckily, we've got a really good backing that enables this to happen. But Puro Accelerate is, um, you know, it's called Supplier Funding Solutions, uh, the team. And that name tells what, what it's all about. So we've got, you know, approximately 250 suppliers in the in our supplier funnel with varying degrees of, say, maturity, operational maturity and varying degrees of funding needs. 
Some of them are fully funded by large-scale investors, and some of them are not. We don't count people with slides uh, into this 250. They have to have a little bit more than that. But we also help when we understand uh, their funding needs. We, of course, know a bunch of, or let's put it this way. The, actually, the process starts from us analyzing the company and making sure that uh, it is likely that they will be able to produce corks. We analyze that the business model is viable with, uh, together with uh, the carbon-related financing or the operational, operational income. And then we also want to see that the output is likely to grow. If all of these are true, then we can start to help them get uh, long-term offtake agreements. We can help them meet the right investors. And when the time comes, yes, also non-dilutive capital in the form of debt and other, other forms. And a cork, again, I think is a carbon dioxide removal credit. That's a term that you all have, have coined. Yes, our CO2 removal certificate is, is what it stands for. Yeah. Okay. And so the, the methodologies that are part of the Accelerate track right now, biochar is in there, even though biochar is a, a methodology you're selling against today. But it sounds like there's also kind of new innovations in biochar that you're helping to, to support here. It's DAC, it's geologic sequestration, it's woody biomass burial and Bex being the key ones. At least that's what I found on your website. And carbonate materials, that one that has been updated. But yeah, so th that's where we are at the moment. We continue to also expand to the extent that is that we can still stick to our principles. We've wanted to start creating methodologies, starting from the least disputable ones and expanding from there, of course, not pushing too far. And you offer an advanced market commitment framework. Are you providing the cash up front for these? No, no, no. No, you don't. Okay. No, 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 no. We we are not the counterparty in any transaction whatsoever. So it, we, we started off as a marketplace. We are no longer. We've sort of taken two steps back, uh, mainly because we didn't want to really compete with our partners who are marketplaces. And in addition to that, of course, getting the ICROA endorsement required us to only, we were basically... They don't allow to have a dual role. Okay. So we had to select either marketplace or standard. And of course, the standard is the core, and that's what we wanted to concentrate on. But these projects can sell digital certificates as essentially futures contracts, as I understand it. That's correct. Yeah. Before the technology is wholly validated to these to, to these marketplace participants, who I presume are mostly corporates looking to offset their carbon activity via removal credits. Is that correct? It's um, the, the pre-cork, the asset uh, that uh, represents the future issuance of a cork, is contains more uncertainty than if you just decide to purchase or commit to purchase a, a cork. That's something that the buyer recognizes and probably then wants to get a discount because of that uncertainty. In a way, it has it provides a I sometimes call it a double whammy. When you make the commitment to buy an early credit from an early stage company, that of course enables the buyer to make an sort of an enablement claim. Say that I was the one who enabled these guys to set up their operations and make new things happen. So if a company decides to buy a pre-court, it's sort of like a double whammy. First, they can make the enablement claim. They can say that I was the one enabling them to get out of the lab and into the field and, and start working on the project for real. Then there's the other impact, uh, what comes when the, the delivery actually takes place. So then they can make the actual neutralization claim. So with the same money, they can have a little bit more. And at the same time, they are helping the industry move forward. Hey, everyone. I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer -peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. 
We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. And are the dollars there, are they transacted upon pre-purchase or are they transacted upon delivery of the actual carbon removal or a little bit of both? Well, yeah, it depends on the preferences. Some suppliers desperately need the cash in the bank and some of them don't. If there's a prepayment element to it, then we can issue the so-called pre-cork, which is tradable even before a delivery of the actual cork. So then in that case, it is a tradable future. If that is not a requirement for the either party, then it is just an off-take agreement that is a piece of paper or PDF that is signed. Okay. And more traditional in that sense. And it exists until the removal is delivered, at which point it's thus retired. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And what's the process for an emerging technology, whether it's direct air capture, whether it's geologically stored carbon, whether it's woody biomass burial, what's the process for any one project to kind of get the green light from you of being still early, maybe not delivering yet today, but ready enough to start selling these pre-cork future credits? That's actually a relatively complex process and is depends a little bit on the, on the methodology, but uh, it contains these uh, three elements that I mentioned earlier. We have to be confident that the feasibility study that they have done with the technology that they have selected enables them to get corks. Very likely that they will get corks if they are able to implement the project as planned. Then secondly, we need to look at the financing, make sure that uh, they are their plans stack up and they are not planning on getting $1,000 per ton for the next 50 years. That's not viable. And then third is, is that we, of course, want to see that there's an ever-increasing number in the output. So if the output, uh, if there's a sort of lifestyle entrepreneur who wants to do a one project and sit on it and operate it forever, a relatively small scale, that's fine, but that's probably not something where we would present as a pre-cork opportunity. Interesting. So the qualified listings in the pre-cork space for you are tended to be projects that can hit large scale, as opposed to what we talked about earlier, where in your existing registry, you have a number of localized biochar projects. That's right. Okay, interesting. So it's it really is a market fomentation approach that you're trying to pursue here. We are encouraging people to be ambitious with their plans. We need to be able to support early stage projects that need to get their data validated and everything. So we accept that we start small, but we need to have proper ambition in the plans so that makes sense for us and everybody else to commit their time. And on the demand side, with the buyers of these pre-corks, mm-hmm. 
how are you seeing demand select from amongst the different projects? Do you see any patterns of what kind of buyer might want to support a DAC project versus what kind of buyer might want to support the build out of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, BEX versus what mm-hmm. kind of buyer might want to experiment with woody biomass burial? What does that look like? I must say that we have still too few buyers altogether in the market for us to be able to really differentiate between them. So in our books, we have 170 companies that have bought one way or the other corks from our ecosystem. And this is now June 2023. It's still a very small number. A subset of those companies have committed to purchase any pre-corks. So I would say that the ones that started the earliest are the ones that are most likely to move from spot purchases. So on the spot today, give me a delivery today kind of uh, mentality to first long term of take agreements and then possibly to uh, pre-corks. So from our perspective, pre-cork is in a way a special case of an off-take agreement. It, It doesn't really matter which way the market grows as long as it grows, it is growing. But yeah, so pioneers uh, are there, the first ones that have already experimented, have gained a little bit of visibility, how it all works, what are the risks, and now they are sort of moving forward with these long-term off-take agreements. I mean, in general, obviously, the volume of activity in this space, as you said, is still small, but growing. I mean, you saw just in the last few weeks, it didn't go through Puro, I don't believe, but a very large commitment from J.P. Morgan Chase, a continued doubling down by Frontier in terms of increasing the amount of purchasing that they're making, Frontier being the consortium led by Stripe and Shopify and and a number of other partners. It seems like the groups that are putting real dollars to work here today have all their own in-house teams to do a lot of the research. I presume you're expecting that to also move toward other organizations that maybe need some help with the validation side of things in the future. That's correct, yeah. So it starts small in terms of the group of companies that experiment and start learning and it uh, expands. We're already seeing new types of companies. So initially it was just uh, software companies and financial organizations, uh, insurance and and so forth. But now we're seeing premium physical product companies coming along and multiple, you know, logistics is is starting to appear and so forth. And the thing is, uh, of course, um, we have 30 different so-called channel partners. There are various kinds of marketplaces that have a distribution capability to segments of the market where we don't have any sort of access. They know their customers very well. They can calculate their emissions, for example. You know, if there's a logistics-focused service provider, they can offer emission calculation and then compensation on the fly. That's a segment that we would not be able to address uh, if it was just us trying to address the whole market. Have you seen with some of the controversies lately around forestry credits, are you seeing more inbound activity in any way from these corporate buyers who want to look at engineered solutions to carbon removal? I think there's a polarized reaction to that. There are certainly companies that have taken two steps back saying, whoa, I don't go near that carbon market at all. And then there are another group of companies that realize that there's uh, different segments within the carbon markets. And if that one part is controversial, then maybe we should look into the newly established carbon removals market and look at the opportunities there. So yes, in effect, we have seen more companies approach us lately, but then at the same time, some companies uh, are also saying that, okay, no, 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 not for us, not now. 
Oh, interesting. So a very clear qualification filter you have when going out to do business development and sort of source new demand partners. Yeah, the thing is, of course, it's um, uh, nowadays so that it's typically so that we want to, of course, work with all the best marketplaces and channel partners from our perspective. So that's what we are going after. Yes, we also do get inbound contacts from corporate customers, which we then, after a brief conversation, typically introduce to either a marketplace or directly to a suitable supplier. So, And then we take a step back from there. I mean, it seems to me like there's just such a shortage of supply in this space today, particularly on these nascent emerging technologies, that most companies that are anywhere near having delivery capability right now are just selling directly to potential buyers. And it's just because the marketplace is small enough that it can be inefficient like that. Is there a time frame you all are looking at where you think that's going to shift? Yeah, it's uh, going to be 2025 or six. Then we're going to see a huge number of basically BEX facilities and, and also some larger scale director capture facilities coming online. So that's going to be a change. And one, I think building a market requires two sides, demand and supply, to grow approximately at, in unison. One key stakeholder in this market is SBTI or Science-Based Targets Initiative. At the moment, there is no proper guidance from SBTI as to how to reach carbon net zero. What is the qualification for a certificate to be able to make the claim of carbon net zero and when to start building the capacity? So that's a bit of a problem for the industry at the moment. We would, of course, hope that they would give this guidance as quickly as possible so that it would unleash the demand of those approximately 4,000 companies who have made these carbon net zero pledges. At the moment, we are seeing one-tenth of those companies being active on this field, and that's not nearly uh, sufficient to enable the scale of demand for the next wave of supply coming in. We've hardly talked about BEX, so that's a technology that you think will hit scale sooner than some of the others. Why is that? Maybe explain BEX for people who don't know what it is. Yeah, so bioenergy with carbon capture and storage is basically one way or the other. There's, for example, a power plant that produces heat and energy, combusting biomass, for example, woody biomass, and that energy is, of course, distributed locally. The CO2 can be captured, transported, and injected underground. That's basically the BEX process in, on a general level. There are variations of that, of course, and one of them, a great example, is Navigator CO2, who is capturing or enabling the capturing of CO2 from a ethanol plant or several uh, ethanol plants, and that is otherwise vented out, out in the, uh, into the atmosphere. Biogenic CO2 that is vented, which is, of course, uh, unnecessary. So they capture that and transport it through the pipeline into a sort of injection site where it is stored geologically. So that's a good example. We know they have publicly spoken about their plans. They are going to capture up to 15 million tons of biogenic CO2 and inject it underground. So that's a huge step change. That's uh, you know several orders of magnitude bigger than what we've seen so far. If that happens, we've seen a 15,000-fold increase in volumes of the biggest supplier in our ecosystem in six years. Wow. So in 2019, we've seen the biggest one was actually 873 corks. And the next year, the same company had grown 50% to approximately 1,300. From there on, we've seen orders of magnitude bigger and bigger, and it seems to continue. So it's, it's actually marvelous to see 
you know, even though looking into the rear view mirror, you're seeing rather small quantities. Now that we have the visibility to move forward or forward visibility, we can see that big things are coming. Yeah. And being there facilitating those pre-corks also presumably helps you see which projects in your ecosystem you can gain confidence in because you're seeing the demand side continue to lean into their solution. Yeah. Which takes me to my next set of questions all around verification. So particularly for these pre-corks where there is still a science risk, they're not delivering yet at large volumes. How does verification work for you? You work with third parties to do it for the most part, I believe? Yes, only. And you said you don't take a cut of that. No, no. That is a pure service that is out there. So explain that and how that works. So for the pre-court, there is no verification because that is not possible. We only look at the documents and the documents seem to be credible and we accept that there is certain risk. However, of course, before any corks are issued, there needs to be a convincing set of evidence that is presented to us and the verifier according to the requirements of a methodology. And only if the verifier is convinced that the methodology or the set of evidence is uh, indeed true, they can give us a uh, audit report that allows us to uh, create the issuance. What incentive do these verifiers have? What's, what's their business model? They are operating on, they offer their service and it's per it's, it's several thousand dollars per site visit, for example. They invoice that from us and uh, it, it's cost plus, basically. Okay, and you're the one transacting them and that is coming out of the profit that you're making from brokering the, the, the cork transaction. It's a cost for us. It, it's, a, it's a cost for us, yeah. Okay, it's not the supplier or the, the demand side that is finding these verifiers and paying them. You, you're in the middle of that. No, 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 no. We, we are, and they are a bit of a bottleneck, I must admit. So we basically are reserving capacity for 12 months in advance. So we know approximately how many audits need to happen during that time. So we go out and say that, okay, we want to get 50 audits from you and 30 audits from the other guys and, and so forth. You mentioned they're a bottleneck for you. Where do you see the need for third-party innovation today anywhere in the ecosystem other than just new supplier projects? What are the picks and shovels that need to form around this marketplace as it's emerging where you think there are opportunities for entrepreneurs to step in and help? Well, I think there's room for innovation in the settlement side, how to make money move. That's uh, not something that we are sort of ourselves involved too much. But we see that if there is a facility that enables uh, so-called uh, delivery versus payment, that would help transactions um, happening. Then, yeah, I think on the funding side, there's still room for market makers companies that are used to investing in early stage projects and accept that uh, there is a failure rate. But at the same time, there can be really high yields in, in getting access to capacity that is going to be attractive for other market participants on the later stage. On that latter piece, would a speculation bubble be a good or bad thing in the pre-cork world? Bubbles are no, not good <laughs> normally. However, speculative buying in this stage would increase liquidity, would help several projects get off the ground. We are very positive about that. We want to see that happen because it is going to be essential. Hmm. I am seeing quite a few projects that are out there working on blockchain-based solutions to enable freer trading of these types of future credits and unlocking them out of the marketplaces that they live in so that they can be traded as derivatives or whatever. Like, I'm curious your thoughts on that whole phenomenon. 
It's a very difficult question. And uh, we do work together with some sort of blockchain or on-chain companies, of course, but I think it's still, there's a lot of exploration still going on and and I'm sure that there's going to be a place for them. I think uh, one of the aspects, um, ways of utilizing uh, the, the immutability or the immutable aspect of blockchain or distributed ledgers is going to be in the so-called uh, DMRV or the digital MRV side or digital monitoring, reporting and verification uh, side, which means basically projects allowing their sensor data, optimal case, to be directly streamed or uploaded into a platform that then can be made or can be utilized for the actual verification happening later on. Oh, interesting. Okay. So then we talked about three big bottlenecks, one being verification, one being payments and settlement, and one being just capital flowing into the marketplace. And my assumption was, oh, the, the blockchain solutions will, will help the, the latter with the capitalization of the marketplace. But I'm hearing you say, actually, where we're seeing, the, where you're seeing the most innovation there is on the verification bottleneck problem. Yes, uh, I, I think so. But um, this is not definitive and, and sure. something, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to, I, I don't see the end play yet. Let's put it this way. Yep, makes sense. This has super, been super helpful. One last topic that I think we should hit on is you have an even more nascent initiative that, that I understand, which is what you call research listings, right? Which are projects that can't even issue a future credit yet, where you're basically trying to capture field data to support R&D. At least I, that's what I gleaned from your website. Is that an accurate sort of view of the really long pull set of stuff that you're helping to support? Yeah, you could characterize it like that. But I think it's more of the, the methodology that we intend to build methodologies uh, on those fields. So it's likely that, you know, they don't, we cannot support them as of today. Uh, in terms of certification. So new research needs to happen in order for us to be able to issue any credits for them. And it looked like enhanced rock weathering was the one of the big ones that you're working on in that space today? Yes, uh, we've actually got the first version of the enhanced rock weathering methodology out already. And it is the first in the world. It is a challenging, it's a very complex process. But I think we've done a pretty good job in requiring the simulation first uh, from the project. Then they need to be able to prove that their way of sampling and measuring is uh, Indeed, either proving that the simulation works or it doesn't work. Either way, they need to be able to convince the verifier before any credits are issued. We did a great episode on enhanced rock weathering, gosh, over a year ago now with the CEO of Lithos Carbon and Ion Carbon. So for listeners who want to learn more about that emerging field, you, you can go learn there. So it sounds like we should maybe see that emerge as one of your next pre-cork categories yeah. in the future. Well, it's good to note that in a way, Undo published a deal with Microsoft. And even though that was not categorized as a pre-court deal, that's what it effectively is. It's a long-term off-take agreement where the corks are going to be delivered uh, afterwards. So it's a bit of a terminology issue there. But yeah, that's that's exactly true. It's a massive opportunity for the climate. Well, Antti, I'm so appreciative of you coming on. You're working on the bleeding edge of an industry that I think many of us in climate tech are hoping emerges as a significant phenomenon in the five to 10 years in front of us. And we're already seeing a ton of activity here, obviously, a ton of innovation. Anyone who's a regular listener to the pod you know, knows we've had dozens of companies working on solutions in these areas on the show. Appreciate you coming on. Is there anything we should have talked about that we didn't that we didn't go into? 
Well, I mean, this is an area where we want to see more commercial activity. There's um, our head of communication, Elba, actually uh, says, uh, where money flows, change comes or change goes. You know, we, we want to make the financial or market-driven activities drive this you know, essential way of reversing the climate change. So I'm hearing if you're a large company, if you're a family office, if you're a capital deployer who is interested in seeing solutions accelerate in this space, Auntie and Puro would, would love to hear from you about what kinds of transactions you might potentially be interested in so they could help you see what, what all is out there. Is, is that a correct uh, ask that I'm hearing from you? That's correct, yeah. <laughs> Puro.earth um, is the web address and contact at Puro.earth is the email address where all contacts are, are very welcome. Auntie, thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed learning from you. Thank you very much to Cody. It was a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. <laughs>